2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace and the peace that are ours through Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high. We thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus and how that gospel came to us and how you made us alive through the gospel. You brought us forth through the word of truth. You gave us faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We've placed our faith in him. And so we thank you, Lord, for all of the wonderful benefits that come through the gospel. And Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here today that has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would grant eyes to see and ears to hear, and that sinners would place their faith in Christ alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. John Piper said this, coming to Christ means more suffering, not less in the world. I'm persuaded that suffering is normal and not exceptional. We all will suffer, we all must suffer, and most American Christians are not prepared in mind or heart to believe or experience this. Therefore, the glory of God, the honor of the church, the stability of the church, and the strength of commitment to world missions are at stake. If preaching does not help our people be satisfied in God through suffering, then God will not be glorified, Christ will not be honored, the church will be a weakling in an escapist world of ease. And the completion of the Great Commission with its demand for martyrdom will fail. Stephen Hurt, in an article about the prosperity gospel said this. In the forefront of the prosperity gospel is the doctrine of the assurance of divine physical health and prosperity through faith. 
In short, this means that, quote, health and wealth are the automatic divine right of all Bible-believing Christians and may be procreated by faith as a part of the package of salvation. Since the atonement of Christ includes not just the removal of sin, but also the removal of sickness and poverty. The world is being drawn to this abhorrent message of the prosperity gospel. If you go to Central America and South America, these regions are being ravaged by the prosperity gospel. A false gospel. In Africa, people are being ravaged by this false gospel. And even in Corinth, back in the first century, the false apostles accused Paul of suffering too much. He couldn't be a real apostle because he suffers so much. If he was a real apostle, he would be healthy, he would be wealthy, and he wouldn't be suffering like he does. In this introduction and overview of the book of 2 Corinthians, I want us to see several things in the introduction. We'll look at the author and the recipients in verses, verse one and the greetings in verse two. We'll identify the date and the occasion for the letter. And then in the overview, I wanna give a statement of purpose. What's the purpose of the book of 2 Corinthians? And then identify major themes that we're gonna be seeing over the next seven months as we go verse by verse through this book. And thirdly, I wanna give us some pastoral hopes and aspirations of our study what I'm longing to see, what I'm hoping to see in our congregation, that the Spirit would take the Word of God, plant it deep in our hearts, and change us. And make us a people who are content in weaknesses, joyful in suffering, and see how God sanctifies our weakness and distress for the glory of his Christ. So number one, the introduction. Let's look first of all at the author and the recipients of 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul, the one who was converted on the road to Damascus, the one who was formerly a persecutor of the church, the one who ravaged the church, hated Christians. And yet Jesus arrested his attention, transformed his life, and made him a witness of the resurrected Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, an apostolos, a sent one, a messenger, 
one who goes in the authority of Christ. An apostle who is sent by Christ to proclaim the gospel of Christ in the authority of Christ, to build up the church of Christ. And notice it says, by the will of God. Paul wants us to know, he wants the readers to know that this was not his will, that this was not his decision, it was not of his doing, this was of God's doing. God called him, God made him an apostle. It was by the will of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. It's by the will of God. It's by the command of God. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not for men, nor through man, not, excuse me, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul wants us to know that he was not self-appointed, he was God-appointed. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother Timothy, is with him. And the recipients are the church of God that is at Corinth, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So remember, this church was founded on Paul's second missionary journey at Corinth. Remember, this is in the region of Achaia, which is modern-day southern Greece where you have Sincre and Athens and Corinth, it's below Macedonia. To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So this is going to the church at Corinth and to all of the house churches all over the region of Achaia. This message is critical because these false prophets have infiltrated with false teaching and have drawn the church away from the Apostle Paul. They've been believing another gospel. Now the first letter that he wrote, or 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with fractions in the church and factions in the church. There was internal strife, internal turmoil, spiritual gifts problems, doctrinal problems. It was a, an absolute mess. But this time, Paul is writing to a church that has been influenced by false teachers who have mocked him, who've questioned his apostolic authority and have drawn people away from the Apostle Paul. So he greets them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we saw this in 2 Thessalonians back in the fall as well. He takes a common Greek greeting and makes it a Christian greeting, which is grace to you instead of just greetings. It's grace to you. 
and peace from God, joining in a common Jewish greeting, but it's grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, this letter is filled with grace. It's all about the grace of God and the sufficiency of the grace of God to empower the believer to accomplish everything that God has called us to accomplish for our good and for the glory of Christ. So the author and the recipients, Paul and Timothy writing to the church at Corinth and all of the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the date and the occasion for this letter, Paul writes this in 55 or 56 AD on his third missionary journey, about a year after he writes 1 Corinthians. And he he writes this 2 Corinthians from Macedonia, so a little bit north of where he is. His desire is to go to be with them, but he sends a letter in advance to bring about a warning and a correction to this group of people who have still not been reconciled to him, who are still leading people astray. And the occasion is because of this influence and the accusations of these false apostles who have questioned his motivations. In the book of 2 Corinthians, it's the longest discourse on the gift that he's trying to collect to take back to the Jerusalem Christians, the poor in Jerusalem who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's collecting an offering from all of the Gentile churches to go back to Jerusalem. And these false teachers have questioned his motivations. Why is he collecting all that money? What what does he want to do with it? Not believing the best about his grace-saturated motivations to bless the poor saints and to share from all of the churches in the region. So they've questioned his motivations and they've questioned his preaching ability. He said he's weak in speech. The false teachers, the false apostles were orators. They were powerful speakers. And they said the apostle Paul was weak in his preaching and they questioned his sufferings. How could he be an authentic apostle of Christ with all of this suffering? Everywhere he goes, he's put in prison. He's almost dead everywhere he goes from all of the suffering. How could he be a legitimate apostle? In chapter 11, verses one to six, Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. 
Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So the date and the occasion of the letter 55-56 AD to deal with the infiltration of these false teachers and the influence that they are having in this congregation that he betrothed to the Lord. Number two, an overview. We'll look at the purpose and then the major themes. The purpose, here's a statement. If you wanna write this down, we'll carry this through the whole study. The purpose is to defend his apostleship by showing how suffering and weakness are both in line with the message of the gospel and in direct relationship with Christ's power being manifested in the believer's life. Let me say it again. The purpose is to defend his apostleship by showing how suffering and weakness are both in line with the message of the gospel and in direct relationship with Christ's power being manifested in the believer's life. So his suffering is consistent with the gospel message. He's sharing in Christ's sufferings. He's suffering for the glory of Christ. And it's in direct relationship with Christ's power being manifested in his life. In fact, one of the most important verses that we'll look at is towards the end, chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you say that today in your life? I'm content with weaknesses, persecutions, insults, hardships, calamities, because when I'm weak, that's when Christ is strong in me. I'm boasting in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ will rest on me. I want the power of Christ manifested in my life, so I rejoice in my weaknesses. Maybe this past year has been a year of trials and tribulations, of sickness, of suffering, and you're wondering, is God even with me? Does he care? Does he know? Does he see what I'm going through? Prosperity gospel would say, your faith is too weak. I mean, if if you had stronger faith, you wouldn't be going through what you're going through. You'd be delivered from this sickness. You'd be delivered from all of these weaknesses. Something's wrong with your faith. 
But that's a false gospel. Because the real gospel says that when we are weak, that's when Christ, his power is manifested in our lives and people see the glory of the gospel. They see the reality of a changed life. Something is different in us. And it's because of Christ. It's because of the gospel. So there's the purpose. Paul's defending and he's showing how weakness and sufferings are consistent with the gospel. And here are the major themes. I want you to follow along with me in your Bibles to follow what we're going to go in in order. The first one is this, an absolute reliance on the God who ordains all things. One of the major themes is an absolute reliance on the God who ordains all things. And we see this in chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now that's being burdened. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Watch this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, Paul is seeing the purpose in his suffering. God was doing something. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So he's seeing that God has ordained the suffering and weaknesses and hardships, but he's also ordained that he be delivered through it, through the prayers of the church. Can you see that? God has ordained prayer as a means of accomplishing his work in our lives. There's a necessity of prayer. We need to pray for one another. We need to pray for gospel advance among all the nations. We need to pray for our partners. Some of our partners are suffering incredibly all over the world. And God has ordained that they be delivered through the prayers of many. So in 2023, let's be a more praying people for our missionary partners. You can go right out in the hallway and see the list of all of the people that we're supporting in 2023. Walk down the list and see their updated prayer requests and spend time praying. Will you do that? Let's commit to pray. God has ordained prayer as a means of accomplishing his purposes. The second major theme is that we have this message as treasure in jars of clay. You may know this passage and are familiar with it, chapter four, verses three to seven. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who has said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Then he says, but we have this treasure, this gospel treasure, this message of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Weak preachers show the power of God, not their oratory skills, as he would say to those false apostles, so that the power of God is on display, not the oratory skills of man. Number three is patient endurance in affliction, a major theme through Second Corinthians, patient endurance in affliction. Verses eight to 10, Paul says, this is of chapter four, keep going. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Look at the hope in this. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's what he's saying, is, is when we're weak, the power of Christ is manifested through us as his people. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that, the great, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God so we do not lose heart. Do you see this patient endurance in affliction? And it's a perspective that he has. In 16, he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's wanting us to have an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective, so that we will have patience in endurance in our afflictions. Fourthly, holiness in affliction. So many times when we're suffering, when we are afflicted, we start getting angry, we start getting resentful, we start lashing out at all the people around us rather than being content in our sufferings. Holiness in affliction. Look at chapter 7, verse 
one, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. I'm hoping that this year would be a year of greater holiness in the body of Christ, that, that we would put sin to death and help each other put sin to death. Even those things like gossip and slander and anger and bitterness and all of those things. They're worldly and earthly and demonic. Fifthly, one of the major themes is genuine repentance. One of the great sections on repentance is in chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Well, more than that, but let's focus on verses 9 through 11. Paul says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. A real change of mind, a change of heart, and a change in behavior, change of direction in life, genuine repentance. The next theme is generosity and joy in affliction. Keep going, chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They were begging Paul to take place in the offering, to send resources back to the poor saints in Jerusalem. They were poor. The Macedonian Christians had nothing. And yet they were so amazed by the gospel of Christ. They, they just wanted to share. They wanted to be a part of. They wanted to participate in this offering that was going back. There was generosity and joy in their affliction. The next theme is a generosity flowing from the gospel. This is a gospel reality. The gospel produces this. Keep going in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is what is motivating all of the Christians to participate. This generosity is coming from how they see the gospel and what Christ has done for them. Though he was rich, he became poor. So that we, by his poverty, might become rich. That we might have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The next theme is grace as the divine enabling power of God. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God's grace is his divine enabling power for us to do everything that he's prepared in advance for us to do so that he gets the credit, not us. It's his strength, his power, grace as the divine enabling power of God. And we see this in the final major theme, Christ's power manifested in the believer's weakness. Chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Go down again to chapter 12, verse seven. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, watch this, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace is equated with power, divine enabling power. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. These are the key verses in bringing this argument forward to, to defend his apostleship and show how these are connected with the gospel. So there's the purpose and the major themes Finally, I want us to look at some pastoral hopes and aspirations in this study of 2 Corinthians. The first one is this, that we would learn to be content with weaknesses and to actually rejoice in them so that the power of Christ would be manifested in our lives and that he would get the glory. And this is something that we learn. Remember in Philippians, Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. In facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The grace of Christ, may the grace of Christ strengthen you. It's his divine enabling power. We've got to learn to be content with our weaknesses and rejoice in them so that Christ's power is manifested in us and he gets the glory. Second hope is this, that we would not be deceived by the worldly message of prosperity preachers. People are being deceived all over the United States and all over the world. It's not the gospel. Thirdly, that we would freshly be amazed by the beauty of the gospel and that we would more, be more faithful to proclaim it. 
Back in chapter 5, verses 17 to 21, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One of the most succinct presentations of the gospel right there. And that's my hope is that as we study together, that we would be freshly amazed by the beauty of the gospel and that we would be more faithful to proclaim it. That we would proclaim it to our family and to our neighbors and to our city and to the ends of the earth. And like Paul said, that the, the love of God controls me. I must tell. Number four that we would continually grow in genuine repentance and that our lives would be marked by increasing holiness. Tim Keller says, the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not just when you turn away from sin and turn to Christ and trust Him for salvation. It's, a, it's always turning away from sin and turning to Christ. It's the Christian life. That we would grow continually in genuine repentance and that we would be marked by increasing holiness. They're going to notice that something's different by our holiness, not by worldliness. If we look just like the world, we won't stand out. We won't be shine as lights in the world. And fifth and finally, that we would grow in gospel-motivated, grace-empowered, and joy-filled generosity no matter what our financial situation is. If we don't have anything, just like the Macedonians, how can we be involved? How can we participate? He's thinking about this global impact giving campaign that we do six months every year. It's become part of the DNA of our church. And seeing how we've already, the goal is 175,000 and we've already gone over 70,000 and we're moving towards that goal at the end of April. But one of the beautiful things is how everybody can participate at whatever level and be a part of getting the gospel, 100% going to the ends of the earth, to our gospel partners. We wanna grow in gospel-motivated, grace-empowered, and joy-filled generosity. Paul called it an act of grace. He, he gave God the credit for putting it in their hearts to participate and help. 
And so when we give and participate together, God is the one who moves in the heart. Not us, not man, but it's God and he gets the credit. It's his resources and he moves in his people to release those resources. These are some of the pastoral hopes that I have in this study. Let me close by going back to that Piper quote that we started with. He said, coming to Christ means more suffering, not less in in this world. I'm persuaded that suffering is normal and not exceptional. We all will suffer, we all must suffer, and most American Christians are not prepared in mind or heart to believe or experience this. Therefore, the glory of God, the honor of Christ, the stability of the church, and the strength of commitment to world missions are at stake. If preaching does not help our people be satisfied in God through suffering, then God will not be glorified, Christ will not be honored, the church will be a weakling in an escapist world of ease, and the completion of the Great Commission with its demand for martyrdom will fail. May the Lord grant us much grace and progress as we learn about suffering and weaknesses over the next seven months and how it's consistent with the gospel and how Christ is the one who gets the glory, not us. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your word, your holy, inerrant, infallible word of God. Lord, help us to receive it for what it is, the very word of God. Trustworthy and true, it comes with all authority. So by your grace, would you plant it deep in our hearts and change us? Help us, Lord. May we be a people who reflect the truth of the gospel and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, Lord, we pray that if If there's anyone here today who doesn't know Christ, we proclaim him crucified and raised from the dead as a sufficient sacrifice for sinners. God, would you save sinners today in Jesus' name, amen.